All right, um, hello, my name is Mitchell Volk, and I'm the visual arts leader here at Veritas Church and Salt Company, and I have the genuine privilege and honor of bringing God's word to you tonight, so I'm excited about it, I'm glad you're here. Um, and over the last two weeks, we've really seen how great David is. Uh, this first, in the first week, Mikey showed us that David was selected by God, chosen by God because of his character, because of his heart. Um, not necessarily because of anything that David had done, but because God had chosen him. And then Zach showed us that David had defeated Goliath, this like behemoth of a man. David had um, not fear when he approached Goliath, but he had power um, from God. And so uh, I think David is turning into, you know, quite the role model, quite the guy to look up to. Um, except that stops today because I'm about to put David on blast. <laughs> but first, to catch you up to speed with what has been happening in David's life since Goliath. Um, so he killed Goliath, and everyone loved that, obviously, because Goliath was kind of a menace. And so everyone loves David, and the king at the time, Saul, was very jealous of this because people are like, Saul, you're not so great. David, you're really great. And so Saul wanted to kill David. Um, but Saul's son, Jonathan, was really good friends with David. And so Jonathan was like, hey man, my dad's gonna kill you, you should leave. David said, thanks for the tip, I'm out. And as David was running away from Saul, and Saul was tracking him through the wilderness, David had the opportunity to kill Saul two times, but he killed him zero times. Um, he did not take the opportunity to kill Saul, even though um, you know he could have done it very easily. Um, and after running away from Saul, he goes to the Philistines to run for refuge. Yes, the same Philistines that he just killed their Goliath. I don't know why they accepted him, but they did. And so David runs to uh, the Philistines for refuge, and um, eventually Saul dies. He just gets old and dies, and David becomes king of Judah, and then will eventually become king of all of Israel. And during this time, David and his army are just decimating the region. They are just killing everybody. They are the top dogs. They're the best fighters. They're doing the best job. Um, David is just like really, really killing it. And then on top of all of this, God comes to David and God says, hey, I'm gonna promise you a reign that will never end. You have a kingdom that will last forever. So things are pretty great for David. And then tonight we have the story of David and Bathsheba and this enters into David's life at the moment where he is at the height of his grandeur, at the height of his glory, at the height of David being David, Bathsheba enters in. You would think that David at this point in his life would have everything set up to just have like a nice, easy rest of his life. But if any of you have read any part of the Old Testament, you know that happily ever after doesn't really exist. So um, I'd like to dive into the text. I'm gonna be starting to read in 2 Samuel 11. So if you would like to follow along with me, that would be great. Um, I'm gonna read the whole chapter, so bear with me, but I think it's all important. Okay, uh, 2 Samuel 11, chapter one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messages 
sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David said to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the foot of the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew where the, there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed, instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jeshubath? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage on us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There is this cyclical nature, cyclical nature that the stories of the Old Testament sort of operate under. Um, if you spend any time in the Old Testament, you'll sort of like see this recurring theme of God promising or giving something to his people um, that they necessarily don't deserve, but he loves them, so he gives it to them. The next step in the cycle is the people that have been given this gift look at it and say, that's cool, but like, what about this? Or... Um, actually, I think that our way of doing that thing would be better. Or they look at the thing and they're like, oh yeah, that's great. Actually, we did that. And so we'll just take credit for that. Um, and then the next stage in the cycle is that this sort of like self-determination that these people go on, this trip that they take, um, not with God, but with, by themselves, uh, leads them you know, into ruin and destruction. And they realize 
in the next stage that they're like utterly depraved and they are absolutely worthless and helpless without God. The next stage in the process is that they come back to God with a repentant heart and they're like, God, we need you. We need you so bad. And then it comes back around again and God is like, you're so right. You definitely need me, but I love you so much. And you know what? Here's another promise for you because I love you. And then the stage starts all over again. And David is no different, right? God gives him this kingdom, gives him all of Israel, wives, livestock. The blood of his enemies is still soaking his clothes, which is like good for a king. Um, And yet David, blinded by lust, reaches out and like grabs something that is not his and says, actually, I'm gonna define what my satisfaction is and I decide that um, Bathsheba is mine. But let's see what happens in the aftermath of this story. So I'm going to start reading from 2 Samuel 12 in verse seven. Um, But, so after this happens, Nathan, who's a prophet of God, uh, comes to David and tells David a story. And the story goes something like this. Basically, there's a rich man who has a ton of livestock, and there's a poor man who has like one sheep. And the rich man has a friend coming to town, and so the rich man steals the poor man's sheep and slaughters it and cooks it for his friend to eat. So the rich man steals literally the only thing the poor man had. And David is enraged by the story. And he says, Nathan, whoever did this, that man deserves to die. And of course, Nathan was talking about David, right? The story is about David. David, the man who has everything, takes the one thing that Uriah had, his beloved wife. In verse seven, we um, come in right after Nathan has told the story. Verse seven, Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. I don't know about you, but to me, it seems like David's actions are being swept under the rug. What is the consequence for David's actions? It seems like his son is going to die, which is very sad, but it's not a consequence for David. David's not being punished. Also, God has promised that there will be like violent upheaval in David's lineage, but also, again, not affecting David. So, where's the punishment for David? That's my question. Um, If you missed it in the story, here's why I think David deserves punishment. One, I'm just gonna call it, 
what it is, um, but the, when the king, the man in authority, calls in an otherwise defenseless woman, there's really not an opportunity to say no. Both David and Bathsheba knew that the punishment for adultery was death, but also saying no to the king was also a death sentence. So adultery, possibly rape, again, bribery. When uh, David calls Uriah the Hittite home, he bribes him to be a part of his plan. So David says, hey man, long journey, you should go home. Stay with your wife, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So that when this child comes in nine months, it'll be like, oh yeah, of course this is Uriah's kid because remember that one time he came home from war and he like slept with his wife? Yeah, it's definitely his kid for sure. So he's bribing Uriah. Also, he tries to give him a gift and he gets him drunk and still Uriah, in complete contrast to David in the story, is a man of character. And what does he do? He sleeps on the footsteps of the palace with the servant, with uh, David's servants. He doesn't go home to his wife because he knows that his brothers, his soldiers, his men are out in the field dying and not with their wives. Why would he ever go home to his wife? Next is collusion. Um, so he gets Joab in on his plan. Uh, the letter that Uriah delivered to Joab, which was his own death sentence, just think about that for a second. David gave Uriah a letter that said, kill Uriah. <laughs> and Uriah walked it down to Joab and gave it to Joab. And Joab was like, cool. Hey, you should go over there in the front of the, in the, front of the line. I know it's not where you usually are, but that's what you should do. Um, so Joab gets in on the plan, right? Because Joab can't just kill Uriah outright. It'd be way too obvious that there was like a murder plot happening. So Uriah, sorry, excuse me, Joab sends Uriah with a group of guys towards the city gate, right near the, the edge of the wall, and they all die. So Joab like makes the plan more extravagant, actually, and as more list of people murdered um, to David's rap sheet. And then obviously the last one is murder. David murders Uriah. Technically the Ammonites murder Uriah, but the Ammonites are just the bullet in David's gun. David loaded it, pointed it, and pulled the trigger. Someone else was the bullet. So my question is, where's the justice? Because it seems to me like it just got brushed under the rug, right? And it seems like everything's fine. David has a dead son, which is sad. But Bathsheba will give him another son, which will be Solomon. If you don't know about Solomon, he was the wisest king ever, also very famous. So it seems like everything is fine. Um, and the consequence for adultery is death. The consequence for murder is death. So, in my opinion, we should kill David, we should bring him back from the dead, and then we should kill him again, right? <laughs> we should punish him twice, because that's what he deserves. He acted as though he was above the law, and the apparent lack of consequence would suggest that he is. Um, so I had a moment when I was writing the sermon, and uh, if you don't know me, I'm typically a pretty even-tempered um, person. Uh, but I don't know if you can tell, but David was getting me pretty worked up. And um, I wish I would have been using a typewriter to write out the sermon, because you know when you like slam the thing back? Uh, I think that would have felt really good. There's just something about hitting a return that's not quite the same. Yeah, 
I was very mad at David while writing this sermon because sexual perversion and death are not abstract ideas to me. I've watched lust tear people apart and ruin relationships. I know what pornography does to the human mind. I know what it looks like for a mother to bury their bright-eyed 22-year-old son. And I know what it feels like to have no response to someone who has just lost a loved one. And I also know what it feels like to watch your friend get close in a casket and then put in the ground. I've personally watched this. So listening to David's story, it's not like some abstract thing that's happening in the past in some place that I've never been to. No, I know David. I know Uriah. I know Bathsheba. I've been David. I've been Uriah. I have names and faces for these people in this story, and I think that was what was making me so upset. And realizing that actual actions have actual consequences. David realized that actions have consequences when Bathsheba called him up and said, hey, I'm pregnant, right? Because all of a sudden, his sin has a physical manifestation in the world, right? His sin is gonna come calling in about nine months, right? There is like something that is happening in the world, in reality, because of what he did. I've had, I've had similar moments on the phone with people, and the person on the other end of the line is weeping in sorrow. And it's because of something that I have done to this person. They're crying because of the thing that I have done. And that moment is the same moment that David had when you're like, my actions have consequences. The things that I do actually matter and actually affect people. I realized that I was getting so mad at David because I was getting upset at the things that I had done myself. I was looking at a dog. So imagine I'm a dog. I'm looking at a dog. It's right here. And this dog is a gross dog, right? It's full of rabies. It's foaming at the mouth. It's got scrapes and cuts all over it. It's got blood on it. It's got like fur from other animals on it. I have no idea how it got there, right? Its eyes are in different directions. And it's looking at me, and I'm a little bit kind of freaked out at first with this dog, because I'm like, that's a weird looking dog. I don't want to be next to this dog. But then the more I look at this dog, the more I get angry at this dog of like, why do you exist the way that you exist, dog? Like, why are you this way? Why are you so gross? Get out of my face. How could you do this, you vile dog? And I reach my paw out to smack this dog, and I actually shatter a mirror. Right, because I realized that the reason that I was so mad at David in this story is because actually David is me. And that gross, sickly, rabies-ridden dog that I'm looking at in the mirror is actually me. You don't wake up one day and decide to have sex with another man's wife and then kill her husband. That doesn't just like, you don't just like hit the alarm and you're like, well, this is a good day for adultery. <laughs> That's not how that happens. how it happens is that sin that is trying to grab a hold in your soul constantly finally finds a finger grip. And that's what happened to David. When he walked out onto his roof that day, whatever it was gripped him and it gripped him hard. 
and it's called lust. And he looked at Bathsheba and he said, mm, that's mine. Actually, I want that thing. And, oh, she's married, I don't care. Send her over anyway. The scariest thing about this story is that the same exact thing that lives inside of David that got that finger hold on him lives inside of you and me as well. That's why I saw myself in the mirror, right? I'm no longer pointing my finger at David, I'm pointing my finger at myself. But still, I have the question, where's the justice, right? Now I've added another person on. So where's the justice for David? Also, where's the justice for me? Because I understand that I've hurt people and I know that I've done things that I really, you know, I can't apologize for enough. And so where's the justice? Human justice for David is execution, like I said before. But human justice always falls short. No matter how good the system or how right the verdict, it will never actually redeem the offense. If a teenager gets shot down in the street and the man who shot this teenager down is tried and convicted and, you know, pleads guilty, is put in jail for the rest of his life, that, for me personally, I feel very safe by that. And I say thank you, justice system, for getting a murderer off the street. I'm very appreciative of that. But locking a man in a box does not bring that kid back to life. Human justice does not redeem the sin, it only deals with the consequences of the sin. Because for that teenager and his friends, right, they lost one of their friends, the human justice system can't take care of that. There's an empty seat in class now. The human justice system can't really do anything about that. There isn't a government agency or a corner store that's in charge of emotional redemption. You can't walk down the street and say, hey, you know, um, I, got, I got cheated out of this car sale that I was on and it really bummed me out and now I have like trauma from it. Um, so can you redeem my voucher for some emotional support? There's not an agency that exists like that. You can't buy a lotion that will reverse effects of calamity. Stress and trauma has already been inflicted upon you. The blade has already cut through your skin and it will leave a scar. Now the person that cut you We'll get in trouble, but the scar is still on your arm. I think that our view of justice is too small, but I think it's only too small um, because of divine justice. There's a difference when you start thinking about human justice and divine justice. So human justice, I would say, is like a Band-Aid on a bullet hole, right? You get shot in the chest, Someone hands you a Band-Aid, you're like, thank you. It's not really gonna do a whole lot, right? It might potentially stop the bleeding, but also you have a huge hole in your chest and also all the organs that are inside of your body have holes in them as well. And what happened to the person that shot you? Where are they at? So um, the difference is dealing with the consequences and actually redeeming the sin itself. God's justice must punish evil. For God to be just, he must punish evil. There is no sweeping anything under a rug. That's not an acceptable answer to this. The Lord has put your sin away. That's 2 Samuel 12, 13, what we just read. That was after David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said, and the Lord has put your sin away. You will not die. 
So if God is just and he hates sin, then where did it go? Where did he put it away? God's justice flips this phrase, the Lord has put your sin away, on its head. It goes from a lack of justice to actually the most severe form of punishment ever delivered. David's son dies and his lineage is a mess. People continuing to do evil, but those things are just a consequence of sin. The sin of David blatantly defying the holy and perfect God is still hanging in the air. The consequences have been dealt with, but the fact that he sinned against a holy and perfect God still exists. The Lord has put away your sin. This little phrase shows us what David couldn't see at the time, that we can see now, but that God's justice, his holy, perfect justice was actually served on the cross. And it's ironic because it's actually the biggest injustice of all time because there's this perfect innocent man that's dying for the sins of a bunch of people that are not innocent. He's dying for the sins that he did not commit. If we ever break the law in America, we're told that we're going to feel the strong arm of the law. But if we were to ever feel the strong arm of the Lord, it would absolutely decimate us. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the only response from a just, holy, perfect God to seeing sin is to punish it and forsake it. And Jesus didn't die because he deserved it. Oh no, the Lord has put away your sin. Guess what? There wasn't a rug there when Jesus was hanging on the cross for the sin to be brushed under. No, it was all landing on the shoulders of Christ. Jesus impersonates you, takes your place on death row. He says, hey, take my shirt and my ID, and you can get out of here, and I'll take yours, we'll switch. And after you leave, you're in front of the Father, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I see a righteous, holy person in front of me. And back on death row, Jesus walks into the execution chamber. They're like, hey, are you uh, Mitchell Volk? And he's like, check out my shirt, see my ID. Yes, I am. That's me. And he dies the sin that you should have died. He dies the sin that I should have died. God's justice, God's actual justice is served. It redeems the sin, it redeems the consequence of the sin. It's not a a band-aid over the bullet hole. Actually, it's going in and fixing all the organs so they work better than they did before. You have better organs, you can breathe better, you can run fast, you can jump higher. You can swim underwater now, because why not? Because you're a new creation, you're made new. And the bullet is pulled out and is put back in the gun and the gun is put back in the, in the shelf and the person who shot you is, is talked to, right? All of this situation is better now than it was before. Not only is it redeemed, but it's made better. But the transaction that happened in death row with the exchanging of the IDs, God's 
complete and total wrath fell on Jesus because that is the only response to sin. But Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? It's the best part of the story. Because of wrath, if God's wrath would have fallen on us, we would have stayed dead. But Jesus refuses to stay dead. And he actually comes up from the grave and he says, hey, I conquered death. And you know that sexual like, perversion stuff you're dealing with? You actually don't have to be a slave to that anymore. And David, you actually don't have to have sex with Bathsheba. And you don't have to fall into these things that you keep falling into. And this cyclical cycle that we are all going in day after day, you don't have to do that anymore. And he says, because you're mine. Because I've purchased and won you. You are mine. And we come back up to the beginning of that cycle again. And God has given us this perfect, wonderful gift of salvation and paradise with him. And he says, here is this because I love you. What's the next stage of the process? The next stage of the process is people responding. How will you respond? I'd like to pray Psalm 51 over us. This is a psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by Nathan. Father, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit.